it's a it's a real joy to to serve among such people. Uh, this morning, to I'm sure your very great surprise, we're going to still be in Exodus, and uh, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 15. And as you find your way there, I want you to think for a minute about times in your life when something in your heart moves you and you feel compelled to sing. I remember uh, uh, one of my favorite professors at Dallas Seminary, a guy named Scott Harrell, uh, he became a personal friend of mine, and he was talking to me about driving in his car. He was coming home uh, from being out east speaking and teaching, and he was coming home on Highway 30, uh, Interstate 30, as it comes into Dallas, comes right up over a hill, and you look down over Lake Ray Hubbard, which is this beautiful reservoir that goes actually under the interstate there on both sides. And it was a bright, sunny day, and he was in his car by himself, and he was telling me, he goes, it was great, Joe. He goes, he goes I was listening to the radio, and you 2 came on, and Bono starts going, it's a beautiful day. <laughs> you know, and he's like, man, he goes, I did not want to let it fade away. I may have exceeded the speed limit, right? And uh, he goes, you just come rolling in, and it's this beautiful vista, and you look out, and you have a song in your heart, right? How many of you all sing in the car? Be honest. All right. All right. How many of you sing in the shower? Be honest. Okay. Now, uh, why do you do that? Because you just experience the sheer joy of life at certain moments, right? I remember being on a mission trip in Mozambique. Uh, this has been gosh, almost uh, 15 years ago now, we were on this mission trip, and we're in the kitchen. All the guys were in the kitchen. We're cleaning up and so forth, and I don't know if it was me that started or one of the other guys started. We just start singing hymns together as we're doing dishes in the kitchen, in this little African house where we're all staying, and the water's not especially clean, but we got it really hot, <laughs> and, and we're doing dishes, and we're just singing to the Lord out of just joy of being there. I remember uh, when we got married, uh, Karen and I, uh, she looked so amazing on the day we got married. I mean, I, I cried when I saw her. It was amazing. And we got married, and it was this great celebration, and we go running down the aisle, and I just grabbed her at the end of the aisle, and I picked her up, and I spun her around in a circle. And she had this big dress, and it kind of billowed out. And People are like, that was so cool. And it really was just a great moment. I just had so much joy. And I just couldn't contain myself. Still can't. And I remember another time that um, sometimes, when, uh, now don't come check on me in, on Friday afternoons, but on Friday afternoons a lot of times I'll be here by myself. And I'll be doing sermon prep for the week. And sometimes I just get so excited about the text and what God is teaching me in it, and I'll just start singing. Again, don't come check on me. I want that time <laughs> to be private, a private moment between me and the Lord, okay? But nonetheless, sometimes when you just have so much joy in your heart, you just, you know, it's not like, my life isn't like a musical, you know, it's not like the music man or something where you just have, you know, singing that breaks out at random moments, you know, but... But and I don't sing well, all right. Uh, I I I have told people that if it's true what Jesus said, and it is that in heaven the last shall be first. 
I get in the front of the line when they hand out singing voices, okay? But um, sometimes that's the only appropriate response is just out of sheer joy in the Lord to just start singing. And that's what happens after the Israelites make their Red Sea crossing. They have seen this amazing deliverance. They have seen this just incredible, they've had this incredible experience. They've all, can you imagine this? I mean, you know, uh, DreamWorks did a pretty good job a number of years ago with the, with the, uh, the Prince of Egypt movie. You remember Moses walks out and just, he sticks his stick in the water and all of a sudden the water just goes, Woof! and it forms walls the size of the people. And as they're walking by and they get their torches and it's dark and so forth, and you see a whale go, kind of swim by. Wouldn't that be amazing? I mean, you ever been to the aquarium and seen that kind of stuff, right? Only there's no glass. It's just the, it's just the wind from God holding the water back. And they all walk through with the angel of the Lord in a column of fire behind them guarding the back door. And then he lifts, he lifts up and lets the Egyptians come in the water. They're coming in after him. And just at the moment when they're really in danger, God causes the wind to quit. And the water goes back. And the entire army of the Egyptian empire drowns. And they stand safe on the shore. And that's where we start the text. Exodus chapter 15, verse 1. Then, in other words, right after that, Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The strength, the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God. And I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his his host he cast into the sea. And his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down to the depths like a stone. And the song begins by praising God for what he has done. It looks back on this crossing through the Red Sea that has just happened. And it highlights several things that have been accomplished in it by God. And first and foremost, notice how Yahweh is described as a warrior. The song says, look, he sunk Pharaoh's chariots and his horses, and he drowned them all in a rush of seawater. They sank like rocks. And sometimes people get uncomfortable with the idea of a God who fights and who puts people to death as he did Pharaoh's army. But we need to remember a few things. Uh, First, I think we need to remember that we need to get our view of who God is and what he is like from the scriptures rather than from our own ideas. Because a lot, you know, I've had, had a lot of conversations with people over the years. And one of the things that people often say is, well, I don't believe in a God like that. I don't believe in a God who does that. And what I always say to them when they say that to me is, well, you know, it's interesting that you say that. However, 
we need to ask the question, not whether or not we believe in a God like that, but whether, in fact, God is like that. People will say, well, I don't believe in a God who brings justice, a God who judges people, a God who condemns to death. And I said, well, it doesn't matter what we believe. What matters is who God is and what he, in fact, does do. Because if you, the fact that you do not believe that God does that matters nothing if, in fact, God does do that. Amen? You know, I might believe, as an example, that I can stand up on top of the roof of this building, flap my arms really hard, and fly. But what I believe will not be nearly so relevant as the law of gravity and the fact that I weigh 240. <laughs> okay. Um, that will not be relevant, right? Gravity is going to come into play, and what I believe is not relevant. What is true is what is relevant. And what is true is that God is a warrior, and he does fight for his people. And on top of that, if you're uncomfortable with that idea, understand who this is that God is fighting against. This is not little old ladies who are selling Girl Scout cookies. This is the Egyptian army. These are people who are riding after the people of God to murder these people. These are people who have enslaved and oppressed and already murdered a big portion of God's people. And God says, I will deal with them. We, we serve and we believe in, because we are told by the scriptures about, a God who does balance the scales of justice. And a God who will not allow oppression to continue forever. Eventually, God draws a line and says, no more. And he steps in. And he puts the wicked to death, as he did with the Egyptians. God is a warrior, and he does bring judgment against the wicked. And you see that everywhere in your Bible, from Genesis chapter 3 all the way to Revelation chapter 20 that God brings judgment against the wicked. Second, you need, to rem, uh, you, need to, you need to see here that because of God's justice, that Israel can praise God as their Savior. If he had not won the battle against the people who enslaved them and were trying to do that again, then they would not have been able to praise God as their Savior because they would have gone back into slavery. It was at this moment that many of them really understood what the Passover was all about, he was, that God was saving them, and that their physical deliverance was a picture of their spiritual redemption. This is why they sing this line here in the middle about the Lord is... My salvation, my God, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. Because they all of a sudden realize that as they crossed safely through the waters, that they had had to put their trust in Yahweh and be saved in the same way that in order to experience physical salvation, they'd had to put their trust in Yahweh to be saved. 
now they understand, oh, God is my Savior. I put my trust in him in order to be saved in a spiritual way too. Uh, This is why Paul refers to this event of the Red Sea crossing in 1 Corinthians 10 as as the people being baptized in the Red Sea. Uh, When it, it pictures Israel's spiritual salvation in a physical way. Just like when, you, when, when we in the, in as New Testament Christians, as, as members of the family of God, when you are baptized, it pictures your spiritual salvation in a physical way. Amen? That water is a symbol of death. And when you go under the water, you died. Your sins are buried with Christ. And when you come up out of the water, you have been brought to new life. Just as Christ is raised from the dead, you are raised with Christ. And you experience new life and deliverance from sin, right? Cleansing. And, and it uses, and it's the same element, which is why Paul makes the comparison. He goes, just as Israel was baptized in the Red Sea, so you've been baptized into Christ through, through the water of baptism. And and the only appropriate response for what God has done is praise. These people look back on the way that God has saved him, and they praise God. He justly judges the wicked, and he saves his people. Amen? And that is the same response that God expects of us. As we look back on what he has done in our lives, that we give him praise. That we praise God for the fact that he is a God who judges the wicked. That we praise him for the fact that he saves us, though we were wicked. That he saved us also, and he brought us, th- uh, he brought us in a sense, through the water and delivered us and saved us. Uh, we weren't pursued by an army, but we were pursued by sin and Satan, and we were headed for death, and God delivered, and God saved. And we need to praise God for what he's done, but we also need to... Uh, as the text is going to point out to us in this next section, praise God for who he is. Look at your Bible here, verses 6 through 13. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the water piled up. The floods stood up in a heap, the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its full of, fill of them, I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, Awesome and glorious deeds, doing wonders. You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Now, as you read that section, what you see, first of all, is there's been a little bit of a shift from the first uh, five verses. The first five verses are about God and what he has done. The next verses are addressed to God and talk about who he is and how great he is. And they're, they're sung directly to him in a, in a song of praise. And what you see highlighted in it are se- several aspects of God's character. About 
what kind of a God this is. And the first thing you see is that he is glorious in power with his right hand. Now, that's a poetic way of referring to God's omnipotence, that he is able to do whatever he sovereignly wills, he is able to accomplish. There is no enemy too strong for him. He is able to do everything that he desires as God. And the next thing you see highlighted is his wrath. And if you look at the text here, I love how this is described poetically. It says, talks about the blast of God's nostrils piling up the water. You know, it's just like, because you know what happens when you get, when you're angry, right? Your nostrils flare out, and you know, and that's the idea, okay? That's the idea, is that, is that God is, he's angry with the Egyptians for what they have done to his people. And so the, the breath of his nostrils is what blows back the water and allows his people to pass through. And it's, and it's when his wrath is at its limit that the Egyptians are drowned. And it consumes them, says like stubble. Now, interestingly, that reference to stubble, I think, is part of, part of a pointed description of God's wrath also. Remember what the Israelites had to do when God initially came through Moses and said to Pharaoh, let my people go? Pharaoh said, Oh, you want to go worship your God. Okay, well, I've got another plan. Here's what it is. You're going to go out, and you're going to make the same number of bricks as you've been making, them, making but now you've got to go gra- gather your own stubble. And so the same people who oppress the Israelites with stubble are now being turned to stubble in God's wrath and his judgment against them. So that's, a, that's an important word. Um, the next thing he says is, is that, the next thing that's highlighted is God's uniqueness, that there is no one like God. He says, he says, who is like you? Who is like you among all the gods? Uh, and the, the implied answer is, no one is like you. And, and he goes on to explain how that's true. He says, look, you're majestic in holiness. You are awesome in glorious deeds. You are a God who does wonders. In other words, all the other gods that are out there that people worship and bow down to, and if you have never seen this, this is an amazing thing, that you actually do in places in our world today see people bow down to some statue. Uh, Karen and I, um, when when I was in seminary, one of the assignments we had for a theology class was to go to a non-Christian worship service and observe it. And so we went to a uh, Hare Krishna temple, and um, it was kind of interesting. Uh, we go in this little room, and they've got the statue of the Swami that founded their religion there on one side, and then there's this curtain up front. Right, and and then we're sitting in the back, and there are people bowing down before the curtain and so forth. And they come in and they ring this bell and they light some incense because they've got to wake up the god and make sure he's there. Okay, I kid you not, that's not a joke. <laughs> uh, they really do. Okay, and then at the appropriate time, 
they peel back the curtain, right? You know, and the curtain comes back, and as God is my witness, I leaned over to Karen and I said, Behold the great Oz. Okay, <laughs> but anyway, uh, <laughs> they pull back the curtain, right? And then they've got, this, they've got this iron cage thing that they are walling people off from the God, and they've got this little statue, this little deity about yay high, and he's got a little consort, you know, a little girl idol next to him, you know, that he's his heavenly comforter or whatever, okay? But anyway, um, and then they get this little idol dressed every morning. They put new clothes on him. They bring him food. You know, I mean, it's some kind of a God that you have to take care of, right? Um, that is not how that's supposed to work. Uh, God, if he exists, should be a God who takes care of you, right? But they've got to take care of this little thing because he apparently can't feed himself or get himself dressed. Uh, <laughs> but in any case, that's the point that's being made. Who is like you among all the gods? There are people all over the world engaged in that foolishness. And in Israel's day, it was even more rampant than it is today. Who is like you among the gods? Implication, no one is. Because whereas this is a God that can't get himself dressed, this is a God that we worship that can separate the ocean if he wants. At his word. That can bring plagues anytime he wants and shut them off like that simply by wanting to. There is no God like our God. And that's in contrast, by the way, to Pharaoh himself. Look at Pharaoh's uh, idea here, verse 9. It says, now this guy is a self-centered dude. Okay, You know that because six times in one verse, he uses either I or my. I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire I will draw my sword. My hand will destroy them. He thinks that he is pretty much, you know, on God's level. And I'm going to be able to do whatever I want. Verse 10, you blew with your wind and the sea covered them. <laughs> the enemy thought he was great shakes until he met a God who was worthy of the name. And then all of a sudden, he was destroyed. And you also see... Uh, verse 13, God's leading and God's strength to bring his people to worship him. You know, the whole point of the Exodus was that God would save a people to bring them into relationship with him that they might worship him. Remember, at the very beginning, what does God say through Moses to Pharaoh? He says, let my people go that they may serve me. Let my people go that they may worship me. Let my people go that they may worship me. Let my people go that they can serve me. I'm tired of having them serve you, Pharaoh. I'm going to have them serve me and worship me instead. And so God is leading them, and he's leading them powerfully because his desire is that they might worship him. By the way, God still is doing the same thing. God is still saving people that they might worship him. Amen? That is why we are here, just in case you're curious. Church is the worst hobby in the world. If you want a hobby, get a boat. I'm serious. 
Take up bowling. Go golfing. Go deer hunting on Sunday morning. But if you are here to worship God, then this is a great place to be. Because that is God's desire for you. Is that you would come into relationship with Him and that you might worship Him. Because He is worthy of our worship. Because of who He is. And the last thing you see is God's steadfast love. I love that word. Love that word, his steadfast love. In Hebrew, it's the word hesed. You have to kind of get a little guttural sound in your throat to pronounce it right, but hesed, okay? And it's this, this idea that God's love lasts. It's what all of us are thinking we're getting when we get married. That we're getting not just love, we're getting steadfast. Love that remains regardless of what kind of people we are. Whether we had a bad day or a bad month or a bad couple of years. That your steadfast love. That God is loyal to us and he loves us regardless. Not because of who we are, but because of who he is. Amen? It's his steadfast love. It's not dependent on us. It's dependent on him. And he is completely faithful in his love. And so you look at all these attributes, his, his steadfast love and his leading and his strength and his wrath and his uh, great power, and you go, man, I have to praise God because of who he is. And that's what the Israelites are doing. Uh, You've got to praise God for what he has done. You've got to praise God for who he is. You also need to praise God, as the text shows us here, for what he's going to do in the future. Uh, look at uh, verse 14 to 18 here. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Now, this is a part of the song that describes future events. In fact, if you have an NIV Bible, if you have a a New International Version translation, uh, what you'll see is that all the verbs are rendered as if they are future says will be this and will be this and all that and if you have an ESV like mine they're present tense and the reason for that is what the translators are trying to to indicate there is that these things have not happened yet however they are so certain that they're spoken of as if they're already happening already occurring now let me just ask you uh, they're down in the Sinai Peninsula, and they're several hundred miles away from the land of Canaan. So is it possible that all the Canaanites have heard about the Red Sea crossing? It just happened. Probably news doesn't travel that far, that quickly. Uh, all the Edomites, all the Philistines, all the Moabites, uh, all the Canaanites, they, don't, they haven't got the word yet. But they will. 
And by the time that Israel comes up to the borders of the land, 40 years from, th from this point, all that is described here is in fact happening. Remember what Rahab the harlot says to the spies? She says, everybody in the land is afraid of you because they heard what God did to the Egyptians, and we know that your God is with you. And so when you come into the land, this is what Rahab said, when you come into the land, you spare me and my household because I protected you and I believed in your God, and they do. And she's listed in the honor roll of faith there in Hebrews chapter 11. But all this is going to happen yet in the future. And yet they're praising God for it because they believe in God's word and they are trusting in these things and they believe them so strongly that they write about them as if they're already occurring. Do you believe God's promises that way? That the future is so certain and so secure that you think of it as if it's already happened? That in other words... I mean, that's how the New Testament writes about salvation, by the way. It writes about it in the present tense. It says, says as an example, this. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. It says, if anyone would... Believe in Jesus Christ. He who believes in the Son of God has eternal life. Eternal life is not something you possess when you die. Amen? It's something that you have as a possession right now. Whoever believes in him, first, uh, John 3.16, whoever believes in him will not perish but has eternal life. Right? It's something that's happening right now. It's something that you experience in full in the future, and yet you have it right now because God's promises are that certain and that sure. And in fact, look what's going to happen also. They're not only going to receive the, the promised land in this life, they're going to receive the presence of God. Verse 17 and 18, you will bring them in and plant them on your mountain. Well, where's God's mountain? Well, in a physical sense, it's Mount Zion, where the temple was. Later on, God established his uh, place for his sanctuary there on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. But in a spiritual sense, you go to Mount Zion. You go to the, in, in the, to, the, to the New Jerusalem, to the place where God dwells, not in a temporary way, in, the, in a Shekinah glory cloud, but where God dwells forever and ever. The place where you have made your abode, your sanctuary, O Lord, that your hands have established. There's going to be a day when God's people worship him on his mountain and when there is no more a temple, but the Lord himself is the temple and we experience the presence of God. Just as they are looking forward to we have that to look forward to as well. And you've got to praise God for what he has done 
what he, and who he is, but also for what he will do because we have a great and glorious future no less than they. Amen? We are the people of God as well. And one day God will bring us through all kinds of opposition and we will enter the presence of God. We don't have Philistines and Edomites and Moabites and Hivites and Jebusites and Mosquitoites and all that. We don't have that anymore. Well, Mosquitoites we do. But uh, we don't have all those peoples around anymore, and our battle is not earthly the way theirs was. But nevertheless, this life is difficult, amen? And it has some bumps along the way, and opposition, and enemies, and giants in the land. But one day, God is bringing us to his mountain. I love that scene at the end of Boys of the Dawn Treader. You all seen that or read the book? Boys of the Dawn Treader, you've got Reepicheep, this little mouse, you know, and he's king of the mice. And and Lewis depicts Reepicheep as this kind of his view of what a classic Christian ought to be. That this guy is going to, he's headed to Aslan's country. You know, Aslan is the great lion the son of the king over the sea. And at the boys of the dawn treader, they get to the edge of the earth. Because Narnia is a world with edges, flat. You know, it's not, it's not circular like ours or spherical like ours. And Reepicheep says, I'm going to Aslan's country. And I'm going to get in my little boat. And I'm going to paddle. And when my paddle breaks, I'm going to paddle with my paws. And when I run out of water deep enough for the boat, I'm going to get out of the boat and I'm going to swim. And if I'm not there yet, I'm going to drown in the water with my nose pointed Aslan's country. It's a great scene. I love it. Now, they messed it up in the movie. But nevertheless, okay, this is, this is the idea that God is taking us to where he lives. And the objective of life is to... Die with your nose pointed, if you will, to the king's country. Because God is bringing us to his holy sanctuary. And then the last thing here in this, in this song is uh, verses 19 to 21. That everyone needs to join in praising God. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea... The Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Now, at the beginning, it's says the men of Israel sang. And here at the end, you've got the women that have joined in. And I don't know if this is kind of an antiphonal phrase where you've got two different things going on. You know, the women sing the chorus and the men sing the verses or what exactly is happening because we don't have the sheet music in front of us. But the point is, is that everybody in the congregation of Israel has joined in and is singing. And it's a celebration. I, I picture something that is 
far more exciting than a lot of us have ever done. You know, some of us are the wrong hue to really worship God, <laughs> right? We don't go in much for dancing when you're German heritage like me, right? We're kind of the people of the stiff upper lip and the stiff joints. Uh, <laughs> but we don't have a lot of, you know, flex in the body, right? But nevertheless, these are people who are dancing and singing and shaking tambourines and probably ululating and praising God. And they are praising God and everybody joins in. And the point is, is that when God does something great, that everybody ought to join in and praise. Everybody ought to join in and praise. Because God is worthy of it. He is worthy of it because of who he is. And he's worthy of it because of what he does. And he's worthy of it because of what he's going to do. And that is the point of this text. If you get nothing else out of this, get this. That God is worthy of worship. That his, we are his people, no less than they were. In fact, in some ways, we live in fulfillment of promises that were made to them that they anticipated and that we enjoy. They looked forward to the coming of Messiah and the giving of the Spirit and the fact that God would dwell among his people. And he does dwell with us in a greater way than he dwelt with them. And we experience, we inherit better promises based on a better covenant in a, with a better leader than Moses. And we experience these things. And we have been redeemed from death and slavery no less gloriously than they were. We have passed through the water just as they did. We have crossed over from death to life just like they did. How? Through Jesus Christ, crucified and raised from the dead. When we put our trust in him, then we escape God's judgment, which he still pours out in wrath against the wicked. We've escaped that. And we've experienced his omnipotent power as we have been brought from death to life. We've experienced and received God's covenant love. We've experienced his leading and guiding us. We've experienced the fact that he's delivered us and redeemed us and that he's going to one day bring us final redemption. Amen? That we're looking forward to a great and glorious redemption at the end of all things. And so, we ought to do as they did. And praise God. If you want to dance, great. If you want to play your tambourine, fantastic, okay? But we've got to celebrate the fact that we have been redeemed by a God who is eminently worthy because of who he is. We've got to celebrate and worship God because of what we're looking forward to. And we've all got to do it because God has redeemed and bought every one of us. If you are a member of the family of God, then God is your father. And he has brought you salvation that is far more glorious than what we read about. You know, you look at this stuff in the text and you go, well, that was the Old Testament because that was when God was really doing miracles. You know, I mean, he, you know, they did the Red Sea crossing, you had the plagues. You know, that was when God did miracles. You know what? God still does miracles. Because every time a person 
who is by nature a child of wrath, who is by nature a rebel against God. Every time that that person like that comes to faith in Jesus Christ, do you know what that is? That's a miracle. And sitting in this room are 160 or so miracles. Living testimonies of God's power, of His steadfast love, of His redemption from slavery and to sin and to death. And you have crossed from death to life if you have put your trust in Jesus Christ. If you've never done that, can I invite you to experience a miracle today? That if you put your trust in Jesus Christ, that He will redeem you. That He will buy you from slavery to sin and give you new life. And you can experience God's presence in your life just like they had it, only better. Because the Spirit of God will not dwell in a cloud that floats above you or a fire at night. He will dwell within your own heart and give life to you. And you will experience the miracle of God's steadfast love for you. It begins now, continues through eternity. So, Tony, if you'd bring the band up, we're going to praise God together. I'm going to pray while they're doing that, and then we'll praise God and we'll sing and celebrate God's greatness and glory together. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your greatness, your goodness, your glory, the fact that you do judge the wicked and punish evil, and that you do not allow evil to run rampant in our world, but there is a day coming when you bring all that to an end and you bring us into the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells and where you are the light that we walk by. And Father, we anticipate that day. And in between now and then, Father, we, we pray that your praise would echo from our hearts. And that we would sing of how great and good you are and of the great and good things you have done and will do. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.